0: Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host, Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Healings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. That's clarkheulingsfund.org slash impact. Our guest today is Dean Mitchell. Dean is a nationally recognized painter of figures, landscapes, and still lifes, and his work often depicts themes from his Southern upbringing. He's won top honors from the National Watercolor Society and American Watercolor Society. The museum collections housing his work include the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and the St. Louis Art Museum. Dean is the winner of many awards and is also a member of Clark Fund Fund's advisory board. Welcome to the show, Dean. Can you take a minute to tell us just a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work?
1: Well, I, I grew up in a small town uh, in North Florida called Quincy, uh, and uh, believe it or not, uh, I'm, I'm really surprised I've been able to make a living because most of the people in this rural town, you know, uh, people didn't know much about art. My grandmother didn't know much about it, and she was the one who got me a paint by number set that actually got me interested in art, and so uh, I'm actually thrilled to be on the show. and. Uh, it's, um, you know, I've had an interesting uh, career, and an interesting life. Uh, it's, it's
0: been great, actually. Well, I I want to say I mentioned uh, Southern upbringing at the, the start in the intro, and, you know, I spent half my life in the South, and, uh, you know, I live in Brooklyn now, but there's just a lot of things that I'll never see again, like actual edible barbecue, and, uh, you know, <laughs> The black-eyed pea. I I can't find a black-eyed pea anywhere in Brooklyn, and I I don't know what's going on with that, but something needs to change. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it's good to kind of touch base with somebody that knows what a hush puppy is.
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I do know what a hush puppy is.
0: (laughs) Exactly. For those of you in Astoria, Queens, go ahead and Google hush puppy, and you'll see that we're not talking about (laughs) shoes.
1: (laughs) But I, you know, I actually grew up in the South where I actually worked on tobacco farms and different things like that when I was a kid uh, through my teen years. So uh, that was very interesting. Uh, and, and if anything will make you get an education, working in the hot fields of tobacco will.
0: Oh, I, I know exactly what you, you mean. I grew up across from a cotton field uh, when I was a kid, and I spent many a day uh, doing things like cutting hay and chopping wood with a, with a wedge and... A variety of different things very similar but yeah the tobacco fields wet sticky and, and hot yeah <laughs> and like hot.
1: yeah that's right <laughs>
0: <laughs> well uh, and for those of you that are not from the south you just got to let a couple of us geek out about that for a minute and accept we're gonna do that on this show once in a while <laughs> so moving right along uh, Dean you've built an extremely successful international career from the ground up can you tell us what early steps did you take to ensure sort of the long-term growth of your career?
1: Well, first of, first of all, I, you know, I decided to go to art school uh, in, in the Midwest. I went to the Columbus College of Art and Design. And uh, I never had been at a museum, and I was very interested in being a painter, a fine artist. But at school, I was told repeatedly that it was just you know, a hard road to hoe to, to actually make a living at that. And so I, I majored in illustration and minor in advertising. And when I got out, I didn't really like it very much. And so I was poor. I didn't have very much money. So I had to figure out uh, a platform in which I could get known. And believe it or not, I had my first gallery show when I was 18 as a result of a show that I entered in Panama City, Florida. So the competition started early on, and that's how I really built my platform uh, nationally and internationally.
0: Well, let's talk a minute about national art competitions, for instance. Uh, You know, was that a conscious choice uh, to go with competitions versus just sticking with gallery representation alone?
1: It was because I, you know, I had a gallery when I was in college uh, in Florida, in Panama City, Florida, called Bay Art Prince, very little small gallery. And they did a a great job selling my work for like 20, 25 dollars. Uh, Fifty dollars. I think the highest price I think I got at the time was like a couple hundred dollars. But that helped me get through, helped me get through college. And so, but when I got out and I looked around and I said, you know, if I'm going to really be able to do what I really want to do, I have to be able to build a reputation. Because a lot of people who come into a gallery are not necessarily, you know, serious collectors. Some are just browsers. And a lot of times, people don't know much about art and they don't understand it. And so I figured the best way to build my platform was to put my work in front of my peers, at particularly shows where they were giving out prize money, different things, because sometimes, believe it or not, when a painting would win a prize at a national show or so, or so forth, a collector would suddenly be interested in it. And so, and also, that also led to other magazine articles and different things like that. So uh, the shows gave me a, a really... Uh, a level it was a level, it was a way that I it was the best way that I knew how to level the playing field and I did try to get grants and different things but that didn't work out for me so I did competitions that's what worked out for me
0: well it seems like a good alternative did the did the gallery encourage you or or take the lead in helping you uh, enter these competitions was that something you had to do almost entirely on your own and independently
1: yeah it was because galleries uh, you know galleries have other artists that they're representing. And so as I looked around, I started thinking, how am I going to separate myself from the pack? And so I'm always looking at a way of marketing myself because I think one of the things that I learned early on about getting known was when I was at the Columbus College of Art and Design, I would look at all these different books, you know, art books and things like this. And, you know, I will say this, I'm I am African American, I need to say this because I looked at a lot of books, and I didn't see any African-American artists in any books at all. I saw a lot of different books. And I also was familiar with the Saturday Evening Post. I remember Norman Rockwell. And I also remember uh, an interview. I think it was the art critic David Hughes, I believe. My memory serves me correctly. They asked him what made him one of the most powerful art critics. He said Time Magazine, because I write for Time Magazine. And that was a key point for me because I said it's one of the most read magazines in the world. And so in order for people to know you who you are, you have to figure out a way to get your name out there. And so shows was the best way that I knew how to get my name out there because they also did catalogs. So I don't know who was going to see those catalogs or who was going to even attend the shows. So those catalogs became a marketing tool for my work and, and for people who were taking them home taking them home with them. So I looked at every aspect of it as, as marketing. Even when my grandmother, when I was about, you know, 12 or so, she would put my paintings on the wall. I would take out these, these paintings. I would take out these, uh, you know, old um, uh, prints, and I would put my own work up, up and I would hang it on the wall. And my grandmother would say, oh, come see what my, grandma, my grandson did. And I didn't realize that that was really a form of marketing because people would remember that I was, that I was a young kid that did a lot of artwork. So, I learned early on about uh, how to get, how to put my name in front of people and try to find the right audience to put your name in front of as well and galleries are not necessarily going to do all that galleries are interested in selling the work you know and that's but my thing was I was interested in getting known and also trying to be uh to be a part of a conversation nationally in terms of fine art
0: well, you're singing our song, of course, you know um, I was writing a note to the Business Accelerator Fellows at the Clark Healings Business Accelerator Program, the, the, the postgraduate fellowship program we run. And I was saying that, you know, for every miracle that's out there, for every artist that got discovered doing nothing but, you know, hiding out as a hermit in the studio and, and painting, just being good at painting art, there are, you know, 500 other artists who did the hard work of promoting themselves, marketing themselves, knocking on doors, et cetera and uh, are also famous artists. And if you were going to bet which one was more likely to generate the result, you know, stay in the studio and do nothing but paint or or do some marketing as well on your own, you know, history you see, and, and the, the actual art market itself seems to show that, that marketing is is pivotal.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, but we all like to dream that dream of the one-off that, well, you know, I don't think that Jackson Pollock went out and, and was a self-promoter. And I always find that funny because I think the biggest self promoters are the ones that speak out against self promotion <laughs> because they're doing it so loudly.
1: That is very true. <laughs> very true. That's a good point. I mean, you know, you can have a great uh, a great you know, work of art, but if if no one knows you have it, I mean, you know, your chances of your finding the collective is gonna be very, very slim. But if you're out there and people are are remembering your name and they'll come to your shows and exhibitions, you know, because I tell you, I've had shows in very, very small towns where people say, oh, it's really not a big market. It's not really a big art market there. But guess what? Some of those people who live in those small towns, they are friends with people who are very, very wealthy who are in the museum world. And so I also looked at things, you know, uh, not through a narrow lens. I looked at things as exposure and then people inviting me to be a part of something, which, some, you know, as I got more known, I started getting more invitations to museums. And sometimes there were, there were smaller museums who didn't have a large budget. And if, if suddenly all of a sudden they say, well, we don't have the money to bring all your work here, it's too expensive. I th- I'll drive the U-Haul truck. I have driven, you know, over a thousand miles to take my work to a show. I mean, to a museum, to a to a small college or university. I've done that, and that's also led to other things, uh, including press and and, and more notoriety, and getting my name out there. So, but but artists have to understand that I, that like I said, a gallery has a lot of artists that they have to entertain uh and so there's even with advertising there's only so much advertising they're going to do as well because if, if you're with a gallery who has 50 artists or even 20 artists uh chances of, of getting promoted on an ongoing basis are going to be very very slim unless that gallery has deep pockets and a lot of gallery owners are not don't necessarily have deep pockets like that to advertise their artists so artists have to have to do a lot of footwork on their own and I, and also too, you you may, you maintain a little more leverage. Uh I've had galleries want an exclusive, I remember when a gallery wanted exclusive with me, and I said, oh whoa, that's too much control. Uh I need to have the freedom to be at inner shows and do do all kinds of things. I remember when I first did my first book, I self-post my first book. I can't tell you how many galleries that that's a no, you don't want to do that. No, do that, don't do that, that's a bad deal. And you know what? After I did the book, one of the galleries that said it, the sales tripled. The sales tripled out of that one gallery. So that, that told me right there that marketing was a huge part of it. And having a book out, uh, you know, I did this book over 20 years ago when self publishing was, was not a thing for artists to be doing. And it actually it, it launched me, it, it actually helped stabilize.
0: Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I I see people going around being at all the right parties and being seen there, uh, and getting photographed. That's marketing. I see people making contacts with the press and walking them through their studio. That's marketing. Uh, People people do what you're talking about, writing books. All of this this marketing that then gets forgotten in front of the spotlight when somebody says, "Oh yeah, I just." tried to paint what was in my soul and people seemed to like it and they represent it as though they did nothing to get there. So I I have to say, I appreciate your candor, sir, for uh, letting us know that, you know, you've achieved a notable level of success and it wasn't through only painting what was in your soul, but it was also doing the work of the business. And of course, that certainly represents the values and the attitudes that we have at the Clark Healings Fund. But I want to ask you a question I think sometimes comes up. Um, You talked about marketing in terms of building your reputation, becoming known. And so let's say you've built up a certain stature, you've built a reputation, you're at a certain point in your career. At some point, does entering competitions fall beneath an artist of your stature? Or is that not true and it's something that you can feel comfortable doing throughout your career? It's
1: something that I, personally, is something that I enjoy. Uh, And uh, my thing of it is, I don't think I could ever get too well-known or I w- wouldn't want to do that. I actually enjoy it. And so it also gives me a chance to see what other artists are doing. So I've heard artists say say something to me about that. And I said, well, you know, I don't feel I can ever be that famous. And I guess that's my that, – either that's my own personal insecurity or whatever. But why should, I, why should I quit the very thing that gave me the platform for the voice that I actually have? And so – and I'm not uh, you know, you know, yeah, I don't get a million dollars for a work of art. And so my thing of it is is that the more I'm out there, the more chances and opportunities I'll have, the more chances I'll have of of someone writing about the particular painting, because sometimes when I win awards, it winds up in a magazine. So those are different things we those are different things that, that, that keep me out there. I do remember uh one I speaking about networking and so forth, I remember early on in my career, someone said I should go to a lot of parties and stuff like that to meet people who were very influential and things. Well, what I recognized initially in my initial stages of my career was that there were a whole lot of other artists there trying to get their attention. So I thought, well, how am I going to compete with these artists? You know, I need to figure out how to separate myself. So because I entered shows and I did different things, I began, as I began to win awards, I noticed that the local paper would have, where they would list what an artist was doing. I started sending in my awards list of different shows that I won nationally. So the very people that I tried to get their attention to at that party who didn't pay attention to me, suddenly were paying attention to me because I was in the paper, that Sunday paper. And my my awards were highlighted in New York or different places where I I was winning awards. Because sometimes with people who have a lot of money uh, you have to merit their attention. So I have to I have to understand that in order to get these people attention, I have to merit their attention. I can't just think, oh, I'm a great artist, I do great paintings. I have to merit their attention, and that that's part of, of getting known and notoriety. And I like I said, I I don't mind entering shows. I I don't have an ego where I feel like you know I'm not going to enter shows. I just not who I am.
0: Well, that's refreshing, and I I like to hear that it's fun. I I think a a lot of our audience may not think about that aspect of it. It's easy to forget that when you're growing your business, it's not just about figuring out how to get your bread buttered and where your next buck is coming from, but, you know, the marketing side of the business can also be delightful, and uh, so... Yeah,
1: it's also good, you know, sometimes I get get letters from artists, And when you get letters from your peers to say, wow, I, I think that painting was really great, it really... Those are things that feed you in your isolation, because, because painting is a very isolated type of field. So to get that feedback from peers is, is, is hugely important to me as a painter and motivates me, and motivates me to want to push even harder uh, for excellence. So when I have peers who are making comments about that it, that feeds my soul. It does.
0: Let me ask you another question about competitions, uh, because I think there's going to be some interest in it as a result of this show. So what's what it? What's important to get right when you're entering a competition? What advice do you have?
1: You have to be your... <laughs> the thing about shows is that you have to be your own critic. You know, you do a... You know, every artist does a lot of painting, at least I think they do. I do an awful lot of work. And then sometimes I know when there's a painting that's got something in it, I say, oh, this has something. I'm going to enter that. Uh, I have a painting now of uh, my friend Bob Raglin that's in the National Portrait Competition that's now traveling, to, you know, that was at the National Portrait Gallery. So there are certain paintings that I know have something in it. And sometimes uh, what I have recognize, too, is that the paintings that sometimes that are a little bit more edgy, that has a little something that may be slightly disturbing, Collectors don't necessarily want, but curators and museum directors who are judging shows, they're looking for that. And so uh that's something uh that I think artists have to recognize that there's a certain body of your work that that has has a special quality to it, and those are the works that I try to enter in enter in shows. So uh, you know, it's just a way of 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 challenging myself as well and putting my work uh, in front of people who are very, very, very knowledgeable about what they're looking at. And so that, that, that's very, very helpful for me to learn more about what I'm doing and, and for my own personal growth as well as a painter. So, Because my, my, my taste has changed over the years because of different shows, different kinds of shows I've entered. Uh, different shows that are a little bit more edgy, things that are a little bit have a little bit more of a modern sensibility or not quite as traditional. Those are things that have fed my growth as a painter and made me look at my work not as just a traditional painter, but also in a more sophisticated abstract uh way I'm handling edges and forms and different things like that. The more you absorb and the more things that you that you see, particularly in different publications of artists who are doing different things the more it can inform your homework and, and, and create a personal growth for you as a painter. So it's not always just about competitions. It's also about personal growth and being open to new experiences uh, and what's being done in the contemporary art world. So there's a lot of reason why I enter shows.
0: Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, we're talking uh, about building an international career. Um, that's this segment of the show. And you're talking about competitions, how pivotal they were in sort of getting you started. And you haven't quit. You, you, partly because it's fun uh, to enter competitions, but also you kind of mentioned that you got to really focus on your body of work and think about what you're entering. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, from what you said, if competitions have altered or shaped your choice of artistic subject matter, have competitions informed what or how you paint?
1: No, absolutely not. I paint what I want. That's sometimes that 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 can run into a problem with with galleries more so than the art competitions because I'm in, com- I'm in complete control. And so uh, when I see something that is interesting to me as a painter uh, and I want to explore that subject matter, sometimes I've had galleries say, oh, well, that, we can't sell that. Or we, we, know, we don't think we can move that subject. Uh, and I had a gallery in New Orleans that sold my work for years I remember I started doing these really, really urban scenes with African-American figures and stuff like that. And I, and, and I grew up in the South, so I did a lot of boats, I did a lot of barns, I did a lot of different type rural things. But I was also being exposed to the urban experience. And so when I started bringing that experience to my, to my, to my palate, the, the owner said, well, we can't sell this. You know, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, send us something else. And I said, well, this is what I'm doing now. And I set the paintings down there anyway. Well, guess what? The two paintings that he said he couldn't sell, why up selling for $40,000 each. The owner calls me back and says, do you have any more of those? And I said, well, no, said, no, "Alan, I don't have any more of those. It's not how it worked. So I'm a very, very intuitive painter. So I'm going to paint what I want to paint. That was the whole reason I got into fine art, was I wanted the freedom to do exactly what I wanted to do, and so in order to be able to do that, I also realized that I also had to build an economic base to be able to afford to do what I wanted to do so that nobody could control my own narrative and what I wanted to say, And culturally as a, as a painter. Uh, I will not have somebody tell me what I should paint. It's not going to
0: happen. So it's an interesting perspective. It, it, it sounds like what you're saying is you, can, um, you need to follow your own muse. You need to uh, be creative and adventurous and use that. Don't let anybody talk you out of that creative adventurousness, uh, because it will lead you to a place of financial security that will allow you to be continually creative and adventurous. <laughs> so I love that. That's, That's a, very true. Well, let me ask you this then: Out of that, you, you talked about painting themes from the South and and painting the urban experience. Would you say you've created your own brand? And if if so, if there's a a unique brand that is Dean Mitchell, is it consciously created?
1: You know what? It isn't because, uh, you know, it's it's so funny to hear you ask this question because uh, I've had people come to my shows uh, early on and they're almost like surprised that I was African-American. As if I'm supposed to constantly have my work address issues of race and different things like this uh And they expected the work to be a different kind of flavor uh and so you know that's 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 very very interesting. I've always as an artist uh explored my own emotions, for example, I did a painting that's at the Museum of Contemporary Art right now It's a painting of my uncle uh who died of lung cancer and uh People kept saying, "You're an every artist will come over. You're never going to sell that. It's so depressing. It's so this, it's so that. And it winds up at the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, and I've gotten a lot of different letters from people about it. I've had people tell me how, they're, how they were touched by cancer. Uh, I believe Mr. Kemper's uh, first wife, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly in that, uh, I think she died of cancer, and he himself passed of cancer. But he was very interested in that work. And so I have always gone with humanity first. That is the key part of what I do. Uh, I'm all about the human condition. Uh, I'm not about uh, racial undertones and all that. It, it, it's all about, for me, we're all human beings. And so I've always approached my work not from a political standpoint, but from a human experience standpoint. And sometimes I ran into people who don't always understand that because sometimes they think your work should be addressing certain issues. I said it's addressing issues of humanity. And that's how I want my work viewed. I want it viewed as about the human condition. It's nothing to do with anything else for me.
0: Uh, let me ask you one more thing before we sort of move on to the next segment of our show. And this is about, you, you mentioned other people actually attending your show, sometimes having expectations that didn't match, that weren't your brand, but they that, that were assumptions. Um This makes me think of other artists and what role they may have played in the advancement of your career. Have have partnerships with other artists or arts organizations, have they helped you advance to the career that you have now?
1: Well, I mean, I would say so, because uh, I do remember the first show I entered in Panama City where I had actually won a prize. Uh, And they asked me to do a a workshop where you actually demonstrate for people. And it, it paid $10 an hour. Now, that may not sound like most people, but for me, uh, for a poor kid growing up in the South, to have somebody pay me $10 an hour to sit and paint some pictures for people, that was just like a miracle from, from heaven for me. And that led to a lady taking me around. I did the workshop for uh, Joanne Dickinson. I still remember her name. Joanne Dickinson taking me around and up and down the panhandle. And guess what? Nobody really wanted to take my work because I was black. They, fed their, they felt like they were going to run off their clientele, and people weren't going to come in their gallery because they had a young Negro artist in their gallery.
0: And so we went up and down
1: the panel trying to, to find somebody. And finally, my first show was held at a bar called the Safari Lounge in Panama City. Or it was owned by a black couple. They did a they did a, a brochure, and they mailed out, and and I sold some works that way. And then finally, there was a Hungarian immigrant who had just moved up from Miami. He said, "There's a sh- there's a gallery called Bayonet Crane, Maybe you should go over there and try that out." So I went over there and tried that out, and guess what? He decided to have my first show when I was a teenager. But because of the the show that I entered and I won a prize, I actually won a prize, and I was in the local paper. Um, and Now Quincy, Florida is about a good two hours away, so I had to get on the trailway bus to get there. And that Saturday, when when Zotan came to pick me up to uh, have to do the show and everything. There was about three blocks of people lined up to buy my work. So those organizations played a big platform in terms of those organizations played a big platform in building. Uh, and I'm very loyal to them when, when there are certain things that I can do to assist them with their goals and things that they want to do. So uh, it, was, it was a win-win for me. And I had very humble beginnings. I was not a, a person who had a family with money. I was a, I was a young poor kid from the South who grew without a father. My mother was the first to go to college. She wasn't around. I had a grandmother who had a fourth grade of education who uh, bought me a paint by number set that got me involved with this. I just knew that I loved it. I wanted to do it. And I had no idea the complications that I would incur along my, my, my way. But they have been varied and they have been stressful at times. But uh, you know I don't mind a challenge and uh you know if you if you if you have a talent and you believe in it you pursue it with all your heart and that's what I've done with it
0: so we're going to go to segment 2 of our show which is about um how the market or whether the market puts pressure on genre and style but first I want to say to the audience, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at ClarkHulingsFund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Dean, I want to ask you, how do you think the current art market is evolving?
1: What do I think is evolving? No, there's there's you know what there what I've what I've also discovered too is that there are different markets. There are different uh, art worlds even. Uh you know, I just I just came from New York and I went over to the Whitney Biennial, which is very, very interesting. But there's you know, the art market to me is, you know, it you know, it's kinda in free form. I mean it's you know, I don't know exactly where anything's headed. Uh in terms of the market, all I know is, uh, you know, the best way that I've been able to keep my name out there is to keep working and to see what's being done and, and try to stay, you know, stay true to true to myself as a painter and what I want to do and not get sidetracked by, because there's so many different trends in art. There's so many different things being done. Uh, there's so many different styles and approaches. Uh, there's also, you know, there's installation work. There's all kinds of things that's being done. But I do think that uh, people are interested in, uh, from for where I want to go, is I'm interested in having modern-day conversations about what I'm doing. In other words, I don't want to just do nice pictures, and I'll say that. I don't want to just do nice pictures. I want people to look at what I'm doing and examine what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Uh, for example, I did a, a group of paintings of the Native American reservation. Uh, the Phoenix area, and that was really a conversation about Native American people and what's going on with them in terms of poverty and different things like that. And so those are the kinds of conversations that, to me, that are contemporary conversations that people are looking for, curators or different people are looking for that type of conversation. Uh, that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at in terms of the art market as far as where it's actually going in terms of trends and different things that's being done. I have no clue. Uh, it's it's just all over the place, but it's exciting. These are exciting times where people are exploring uh, this digital age now. So uh, there's different ways to communicate, get your name out there, and get people to see what you're doing. Uh, there's different ways for us to get information from different artists and what they're doing. So it's very exciting times as far as I'm concerned. Challenging but exciting.
0: And now you mentioned uh, in the previous segment that you know some people have expectations of what. You will produce, and they're they're kind of confounded when they come to the show. But do you think there are other kinds of bias within the art market? For instance, bias against certain genres or mediums. Uh, for instance, realism, representational art, are they taking a hit? Um, is that something you've observed? Yeah, I think
1: there there are different uh, there are different let me put it this way there are different people out there who are championing different things and sometimes uh their sensibility may be much different than yours. And so uh there's so many things that are that are out there, but I do think that realism, because it's a it's a kind of genre that's been done so long. When you look at uh the Impressionists and and even doing Picasso, how they changed so much because of the camera and different things like that. They were they wanted to change because they didn't want to compete with cameras. So there there's a lot of things going on with that. I, I think that there is, uh, I see a lot of, when I, when I went to the Whitney Vineyard, there's some very uh, modern approaches to, uh, to realism that I actually like. It's more painterly, the shapes are broad, it's less detailed, it's, it's, more, uh, it's more, it has a more modern feel. Uh, so there are different ways, of, like I said, by going and seeing the different things that's being done, you absorb uh, different things that are more challenging, and you, you learn from those things. But I do think that realism has taken a hit uh but I think that artists can also uh absorb that hit and still be be creative with it i don't I don't think you have to uh have to you know lay down and just not you know not challenge uh the modern day sensibility in terms of realism. I do think that artists need to need to push it a little bit more and make things a little bit more challenging and not so so safe i i do I do find that uh uh, challenging for myself as a painter for, for a long time. I, and I did a lot of bar and scenes. I still do a lot of bar and scenes and things like that. But then I also have to realize there are certain things that, as a painter, they become not quite as interesting to me because they're not as challenging because I've done them so much. Now I want to I want to push in, in a different direction, maybe things a little bit more abstract and different things like that. I think you need to stretch uh, no matter what style you're working in. And try different things that, that may not work out. It's okay to feel. That's how you learn. So,
0: But I know I, I, so I worked in watercolor a lot, and I think there's a prejudice against watercolor. It's a big prejudice. Well, I, I want to ask you about uh, we, segment three of the show is actually about watercolor, so I want to I wanna dig into that. So if anybody's listening that has an interest in, in watercolor art, they they want to stay tuned. But let me ask you a couple more questions about genre and style pressure. So uh, you'd mentioned that uh, show applications uh sometimes uh, you you have to kind of be selective about what you submit do you do you think that tastemakers still have the power to make or break an artist's career and do you see that do you see any bias in competitions and show applications for instance you know what you can and really can't submit if you, if you really want to be successful using that as a a marketing or a sales channel you know it's,
1: it's it's so funny uh when i entered the um the national portrait gallery's competition you know, we all, I, you know, I would read and look who's judging, and I thought, hmm, these are very contemporary judges, uh, you know, and I thought, yeah. So now I'm looking at my work, and I'm thinking, hmm, what's really edgy? What's Because I know that sensibility, again, because of my travel and I've gone to different shows, uh, and so when I selected the portrait that I entered and they got in, I was thrilled. But it had something that wasn't. It was gritty. It was. It was. It was modern. It was. It was about. It was, You know. You have to see the portrait. But it, it, it was a friend, and he was. He was an artist. But uh, I do think that uh, uh, the tastemakers, as far as tastemakers go, I was in a show at the Studio Harlem Museum called Black Romantic. Uh, it was put on by Delma Golden, who comes out of of uh, the Whitney Biennial. And it was about examining the black figure within American culture. And uh, I was a little bit leery about participating in this. just uh, because of what I had heard about the show. It's not going to be something that, that she was actually making a, a critique about, but on the other hand, it was. And so there was this genre realism that was being bought by african-american people and they thought it was pretty much a lot of it they thought it was sketch. i'll just put it out there uh and so i you know i you know, i'm a part of the show and uh michael kimman comes in I, you know, I have to admit i didn't know who Kimmelman was at the time uh and when i was at your home he said oh michael Kimmelman loves your work uh, who's michael Kimmelman? well he's the main critic for the new york times so i to make this story short my painting ends up uh, making history it was it was a painting that was called Socrates. It was, it was a reproduction in the New York Times from the very top of the page to the very bottom of the page, calling me a virtual modern day for me uh, of African-American people. And I dignified this image and so forth. But you have to read the article. But the bottom line of it is I didn't get a call from a single museum. I didn't get a call from anybody. But I got this raving review. And I thought, well, this is very, very interesting. And there was another artist who was in the show. He's everywhere now, but he's out. He's from I think he went to Yale or Harvard. But the bottom line of it is, I, re- I recognize I'm in the Midwest. I'm not on, I'm not at New York. I'm not yeah. You know, I'm not in the in the big mix of the art world as as it is. And so I looked at that and I thought, hmm, very very interesting. Where you live does that play a role in certain things? But again, the competition knows where you're from. they just they just put the slide up they look at it. They had twenty five hundred entries for that portrait show, and there I was, I got in there I,
0: I think I'm hearing you say that bias is not a factor, is that right?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a factor or whether it's part of the equation in terms of because when I got to New York uh someone asked me i I'll, I'll be honest with when, when I went out to Stewart Harvey and they said, "Where are you from?" <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, you know." I'm from Kansas City. You know, you know the, the line that follows? You must come to New York. You need to get out of Kansas City. It does not ring culture. This was told to me. And I thought, really? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about moving forward. No, you need to come to New York. You need to be in New York. You're very talented, but you need to be in New York. And so, and as I, and I have read different books on different artists. And where they live will matter in the scheme of things. And where they go to school, it doesn't matter. People don't want to look at those things, but it is true. I have no problem saying it is true. Uh and the poll leans a certain way. I I recognize I have no problem with it. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and I'm gonna live where I want to live. <laughs> you know, because it's my life. And I'm the same way the way I paint. Uh and so but as far as history goes, as far as I'm concerned, the New York Times has sealed my faith. That article alone has sealed my faith, believe it or not. They can ignore me, but they're going to dig me up <laughs> whether they want to be bothered with me or not. They're going to dig me up because of that. Uh, and so I I, I I, didn't go after that because, first of all, I didn't know I was going to even make a living at this. you got to understand I'm a kid that grew up with a Grandmother had a corporate education. I'm a kid who, who didn't grow up. Here I am in the New York Times. With a, I mean, are you kidding me? I've already. My life is great. It's not that I wouldn't want to be more recognized and be a part of the conversation deeper into the bigger art world in New York. But if New York is not willing to pull me in, there's nothing I can do. What I can do is keep doing my work honestly may grace fall upon me that maybe that may happen one day, but I can't, I can't live my life waiting on that. I have to live my life doing the best work I can do and do the best work I can do to, to enlighten people about the world, enlighten people about humanity, enlighten people about social conditions. That's all I can do. I cannot fight political battles with who someone likes and who they don't like for a particular style or this or that. I don't get into that. I'm into doing what I want to do and what I, I'm controlling this narrative. No one else is controlling it. Now, how someone perceives it, that's totally up to them. I have nothing to do with that. I'm about creating the work. Then it has a life of its own when it leaves my studio. That's how I work. I don't work any other way.
0: Well, you know, of course, I think people should come to New York because of uh, the New York Times and Broadway and the great food. I I myself am a transplant New Yorker. Well, yeah, it's, it's a great city. I mean, New York
1: is a great city. I mean, oh, that. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mother lived in East Orange. Well my mother lived in East Orange for a year, so I was always going to New York. I mean I was driving through the Lake of I mean, a, I mean the museums there, the energy. It's a great place. No one can deny that. Oh my God. No. Would I like to be a bigger part of that conversation? In New York. Surely. But you know, I, I want to live where I want to live. But uh New York is a great place. So, I've been up there plenty of times. So I go up there all the time.
0: New York all the time. I love it. There you go. Well I want to uh, pivot, and uh, in we have a third segment of the show, and a fourth, and in the third, I want to ask you about watercolors, specifically, um, because this comes up. Uh, so, you work a lot with watercolors. Uh, first, why do you like that, and why not stick with just oil or tempera? Would it be easier?
1: <laughs> you know what's really funny is... Uh... I was primarily, you know, just oils when I went to college. I, I dabbled around in watercolor here and there and different things, but but uh, uh, I actually got in watercolor because, of, of, again, a student, who, uh, a friend of mine who was a watercolorist, and he showed me his work. Wow, these are great! I think you could do this with watercolor. And when I saw how how, how many different ways you could work with, it, I started checking out books and reading different books and trying different things. And I I actually fell in love with it. But there's also another business side of me. Uh, that ended up uh, looking at watercolor, too. Uh, and unfortunately, this is this is true, I looked at it I said, hmm, people are not willing to pay as much for watercolors. This could possibly be another entry into a market that's a little less expensive because when I do oil things, I put a lot of time in it. Words with watercolor, if you can master it, it is a very difficult medium to master. But if you can master it, you can be very, very prolific. And also, I recognized that there was a lot of watercolor competition. And these watercolor competitions built my platform, even though I did oil paintings and other things. So there was always, so when people come to my show, especially when it was a big show, uh, they say, wow. We just see your watercolor. We've never seen your oil, we've never seen your acrylics, we've never seen this, we've never seen that. And so again, the watercolors built my reputation, but when they come to a show, they realize they get a they get a deeper, fuller breadth of who I am as a painter and, and my scope as a painter. I like I like that. I like the fact that people come to something and they're surprised at how many different mediums I work in and the amount of mediums that I've been able to master. I, I like that element of surprise.
0: Well, let me ask the pivotal uh, sort of question there, I, I think, or in a lot of people's minds. You kind of partially answered it, but in my experience, a lot of collectors fight over the oil and canvas works of a given artist, but not so much over the watercolors or the works of that same artist, and that even includes uh, Clark Healings. Uh, though many people treasure those watercolors and works, the truth is, uh, you know, oil gets grabbed up first. Uh, even though, you know, the watercolors are, are not only brilliant, but they're, they're probably more rare. So, my question is Has working with watercolors overall helped or hurt your career?
1: Well, for me, they've helped my career. And the reason I say that is because when people come into the gallery and they love your work, and they'll say, Well, I can't afford a large oil paint, or I can't afford this, I can't get that watercolor. And believe it or not, uh, when I was uh, in the Gallery in New Orleans, I, you know, my prices are very, very modest. And what I realized, I started developing a huge following for not just my oil paintings and so forth, but I was developing a big market for my watercolors. And they were snapping them up as fast as I could paint them. So I began to raise the prices uh, because I wanted to slow down the demand. Because it was, it was, you know, believe it or not, the watercolor has has also been very a very challenging medium. I think people are not aware of the difficulty of what it is to master that medium. Uh, it is a master's medium. It truly is a master's medium. You know, you cannot do very much uh, to correct a watercolor. You can do all kinds of things to correct oils. And I, you know, and I don't think that it's a Western thing with the oils, too. I mean, there's just the... You know, the whole idea of the permanency, there's all these different things. And plus also the museum. There's no museum that shows watercolors the way they show oil. I mean, but if you go to China, this this museum is dedicated to water watercolor. I mean they're and they're up. They're not in the in a drawer somewhere thinking there's some fragile medium. Uh and there's all there's been so much advancement in terms of paper, there's been so much advancement in terms of glass to protect it from ultraviolet rays. there's all these different advances that have really changed the playing field for watercolor. The problem is the museum world hasn't quite caught up yet. That's really the issue.
0: So in a recent interview with the Clark Healings Fund, gallerist and auctioneer Jack Morris said that he considers you one of America's top watercolorists. And I have to poke you a little bit and ask, do you agree?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly... a flattering comments i i you know and coming from jack certainly uh you know uh it's it's it's, it's humbling uh i've worked at this medium uh and to have people to respond and say that of my work uh it's it's certainly tremendous uh so and i'll you know i'll take it <laughs> so uh it's hard to say this isn't the best at something but uh you know all I know is people respond to my work, and, I, and I've actually had artists that go, "How are you able to sell your watercolors for that kind of money?" I've had people to ask me that, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, and I, and quite frankly, I have to tell them, truly and honestly, I don't know. All I know is that I do the work, and because of demand, I, you know, I put certain price. It, it and it depends on how I feel about a it. work. It's it's all kinds of things that go into to all of that. But I do know that marketing again uh, plays a plays a large role aside from your your mastery of your skill set. But also, you know, you know, my wife put me on Facebook, and I had no idea, you know, how artists felt about my work. I mean, I you know, I, I had a little bit of an idea when I did my first book. Uh, that people were buying the book and they were mostly artists. So I had this huge following of artists that really admired my work, which is very flattering when you get artists that like your work. So, like, I don't know,
0: you're, that, you're supposed, yeah. Dean, you're, you're supposed to just say yes when somebody, if somebody ever asks you, so this line, I don't know if you remember this from, I think it's Ghostbusters, but it's like, Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, the answer is, is yes. yes. Say yes. Yes. <laughs> <Sorry, laughs> So, but that's good. That's that's good. So let me ask you a little bit about um, China here because uh, this is sort of a pivot and I don't know if it's, uh, it may or may not be a pivot. I don't know if specifically, I didn't ask you this when we were talking about building an international career and I don't know specifically what's selling in China. Uh, for you is the watercolors, but you're regularly invited to competitions in China. And I, I wonder what prompted you to enter that market and how your work is being received there.
1: Actually, uh, there was a, a watercolor, an international watercolor competition. Uh, I don't know, I want to say a few years ago or so, and I'd never heard about it. and uh, But uh, somebody had told, told me about it about or sent me a link, link to it. it. And I read, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. They'll buy a the work, and if you're one of the top, I think, five or ten artists. And these were artists from Australia. So I mean, a lot of people were competing for this. And uh, so I sent something in, and I won one of the awards of excellence. And so the work was shown you know, shown in a, in a beautiful museum, and uh, they, played, they paid your way round trip for everything uh this was the first time I'd ever been to China. And at the museum opening it was so interesting. I had these young kids who were probably teenagers. They were running over to me like I was some kind of rock star, uh, and they knew my work. Um, and it was a different kind of sensibility about watercolor. Uh, and I thought wow this is this is really something and, and and here again, they knew about me because of the competitions and because of the magazines that had done articles on me. There was one magazine from the U.K. that, that had done articles on me. And this magazine goes to a lot of different countries, including China. And so I didn't realize that all these competitions I was in, a lot of these Chinese artists were entering And so these competitions were being promoted in, in China and different parts of the world. I had no idea. I thought it was just like the American watercolors. But it's an international competition, some of the magazines I was in. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been very, very fascinating. Now I have gotten invitations to go back again, but it's, it's so far I have, and I have little children. So uh, I plan on taking advantage of that a little bit later down the road, but right now is I have a lot of have a lot going on. So, but China has been, they're very receptive to watercolor. That's, I mean, that's really their thing, watercolor.
0: Is the market there? Does it differ substantially from what we have here in the West and, what about specifically, say, price point? Do you get higher margins?
1: Well, I haven't actually really sold very many works in China. I've had people wanting to do shows with me over in China. But, you know, I just haven't had the, the window time. And I'm just, you know, demand is just kind of crazy. Sometimes they want, you know, for a solo show, they may want 15 or 20 works. And then there's also the, you know, the international stuff with getting the work over there. There's, there's all these layers to, to just being able to sell in China. And so I haven't really, I'll be honest, I have not explored that very, very much. I've had some some interest in people wanting to do it, but it's just been me with trying to trying to grapple with the, the international aspect of it. I just, I just haven't uh, sold very much in China at all. But it's, it appears that I'm, I'm getting a lot of interest from people wanting to do it. It's, it's really, I'm really the hang-up, I'll be honest with you.
0: Now, I think uh, some people would immediately think, well, China, um, I worry about my work getting knocked off. And of course, I do see that actually on the web. I see the work not only of everyone from Van Gogh and Matisse uh, to artists that are still living and working in this century uh, being uh, essentially counterfeited. In fact, there are some Chinese-based shops that will say Hey, yeah, we'll we'll sell you an original Van Gogh, and what they mean is, we'll we'll paint you one. Do you do you worry about this problem?
1: Well, and, and and that's been part of the the enclave of some of this is that they want you to do a lot of demonstrating and all these different things. And so I used to do demonstrations years ago when when I when I needed the money and I did workshops and different things like that. And now I'm a more mature painter, and so that. Sensibility doesn't really appeal to me. I've never taken a workshop from any artist myself. Uh, and so I've stopped doing workshops. And a lot of times with some of these invitational things, there is this kind of this kind of working environment thing that they want you to do all the time. Uh, and I get that here in, in, in the U.S. too. I just have just, you know, shut down with a lot of organizations in regards to uh Two workshops because what happens is, I still remember this when I was a kid. Uh, the gallery that first picked my work up, he used to joke about the workshop artists, how they would come in and these different artists would come in. And they, I just said, Oh, I'll get a, a bunch of, you know, paintings that look like so and, so and so and so and so. And they'll all bring them in. He said, And then three months from now, the new artists come in, they'll all come in, and all the paintings look like his. You know? <laughs> so I learned a valuable lesson with some of that and go, Hmm, this isn't the the road I want to go down. So I kind of backed away from certain things for that very, very reason. Uh, Now, I have taught in a more of a college setting where I've taught, you know, nude figure drawing and different things like that. But sometimes with workshops, what happens is you you wind up, the artist just winds up, you know, basically just kind of copying you and that kind of thing. Uh, Some artists who are more mature probably won't, but a lot of times people just, what they want is some quick magic answer to painting that doesn't really exist. And so, uh, and when I tell people I'm an intuitive painter, they understand uh, when they see how I work because I work in watercolor off of a meat tray, and the washes are running all kinds of ways, and they're asking me what color I'm mixing, and half the time I can't even tell them because it's like a cook. It's a little dab of this and a little bit of that. They are say, well, how did you get that nice gray? I say, well, it's a dab of this and a dab of that and a little bit of that, and it may be three or four different colors to get that kind of subtle gray. And so it's hard to tell them that when the paint's all running together. Uh, so I've gotten away. And so, yeah, I can see that. But I have seen uh, a lot of work that does tend to, to look alike. Uh, and that's why I think you have to be very careful as an artist uh, not to get too influenced by others. Because you, you, know, you have to find your own road, your own path to make yourself more unique, to set yourself aside from the, the path. And some of that is not just technique. It's also choice of subjects, how you handle it. The composition, or how you abstract them. All those things play a large role in making something a unique work of art. It's not just skill. Art is a lot more than that.
0: If you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at clarkheulingsfund.org slash impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Dean, in the final segment of our show, I want to just ask you a little bit about gallery representation and starting your own gallery. So uh, first, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience with galleries? What has worked for you and what has not?
1: Actually, I've had pretty good experience with galleries for the most part. And uh, I have never approached a gallery. I've never approached a gallery, I'll tell you. I've never approached a gallery. Uh, galleries have always approached me. Uh, other than when I was younger, I tried to get in LA tried to get in a gallery. Uh, but I never approached galleries. What I did was the shows, and then they would see me in the magazines, and I would get calls from galleries. Uh, so, But, you know, I've had a, a good experience with galleries. Now, I have, you know, when I started getting more known, my work started going for a certain amount of money. I did have an attorney that I worked with in case I ran into problems. Which you can run into problems uh, occasionally with people not paying you. Uh, so you you run into that sometimes, but that's been kind of rare for me. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, for the most part they've been they've been fine. Uh, I do think that uh, as a painter, again, uh, I'm going to take more control of my own career because the, the galleries are not responsible for my whole persona as a painter. I am. Uh, they are they are they are a piece of the puzzle but they are not the complete puzzle so and that's how I look at my career they're they're an important piece but they're not the whole piece so when certain things don't I've had gals approach me that I'll look understanding okay maybe I'll try them they don't really have the market for what I do but what they wanted was they wanted my name and so because you once you once you become known, you have galleries all, all approaching you, doesn't mean you necessarily have the market. But if you have a name, chances are people are going to hit your site a little bit more if you have an artist who's a more known. So I'm aware of different things like that. So but I, I you know, I'm I'm concerned with a gallery when I said, Okay, this work's been sitting there for too long, I gotta move it. I will move a painting out in a heartbeat if it's sitting too long. I don't like my work sitting. It needs to move.
0: So it's interesting that, you know, some people think that you have to have a gallery to make a name for yourself. What you're saying is you made a name for yourself and then the galleries came looking for you. I wonder, um, and I like that, I wonder, uh, do you have a standard contract with the galleries that represent you? Or would you ever work off contract, for instance, if if a gallery insisted that, you know, hey, we don't sign contracts, we only work off contract?
1: I most of my galleries I have I have signed agreement.
0: Uh, now uh, there was a,
1: a case where a gallery wound up closing and I had to get tree, you know, sort of level things off. But uh most of the time I you know, I have uh, they people need to know that the work is on confinement. And the reason I say this is because if the gallery gets in trouble uh with a bank or anything that goes kind of haywire with the gallery, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> tell the artist. But and that bank wants to pursue the asset, and they'll wind up confiscating your art, you know, because there need, people need to know that that work is unconsuming. You need to have a contract with a gallery, and if a gallery isn't willing to give you a contract, I walk. Gotta I, I gotta have, some. you know, the attorney always says you need something in writing, D. You know, a handshake and all that. No, you need it in writing. Uh, This is like when a gallery approached me about an exclusive. I said, no, that's too much economic control. And I meant that. And you know what? That gallery did not talk to me for another three years, the owner. Called me up and said, I want to represent your work. I can sell most everything you do. Uh, Well, what is it going to take? And I said, a handshake and a contract. But you cannot have an exclusive. Deal was done. And that gallery sold... uh, that that particular gallery established me financially. It was the reason I was able to get a book done. And I had a, another gallery in uh, the Kansas City area that was doing quite well at the time. And then that gallery came along and they couldn't rival it. And, and so it that, that, you know, we parted ways and the person sold the gallery and so forth. But there are different uh, things that you have to be aware of when you're dealing with a gallery. And, you know, if they're advertising you, if they believe in the work. This is the other thing, you know, gallery owners, you know, you if you're trying to sell somebody's work and you don't believe in it, you're like trying to sell it. You have to really believe in the work. And I do know that the gallery that sold a lot of my work, the ones that sold a lot of my work, they believed in me as an artist. They they truly believed in me as an artist. And that that makes a difference when somebody's presenting your work and, and how they talk about it passionately and present you. That makes a huge difference to a person who is looking at what looking at a work of art. It makes a huge difference.
0: Now you're currently you're currently establishing your own gallery in your hometown of Quincy, Florida, and it'll be named after your grandmother. So uh, tell us what are you looking to accomplish with this project, and uh, how do you plug into the community there?
1: First of all, I I grew up there, and so uh, there is also. Uh, uh, the Gaston, uh, the Gaston Art Center. There, it's now uh, been accredited as a museum. Uh, and I didn't realize how popular I was in that particular area until I had a show. I had, a, had one show in Tallahassee at the Lemoyne Art Foundation, and uh, the guy was a little leery about doing the show. And even though I grew up in that area, and I said, "Well, if you do a little press, you do this, you do that." So I did a lot of press and different things. And believe it or not, when the show opened, there was not enough room. People were hanging out the door. They were hanging out of the door. Uh, And the next day, I was to do a lecture. He said, we only get about 15, 20 people. The next day, the place was packed. They had to turn on the intercom system. There was not enough room. Uh, So I recognized that, and uh, I decided... Uh, I grew up in that area, and it's a nice art center in my hometown, Quincy, now. And whenever I do a show there, you're going to get at least four, or 500 or 600 people coming out to open mine. mind. Uh, and so uh, I've always looked at, looked at my career this way. It's gone way beyond my dream, first of all. And because it has, I am now at a stage where I'm now I want to build a legacy and leave a body of my work behind for it to, a place for it to be shown on an ongoing basis. Now we got I, I'm no Warhol, I'm no Salvador Dollar, and I know that as a person of color, they ain't coming and building nothing for me like that. So what I decided was to use my leverage and and, and, and my little bit of money that I've got, I am going this is this gallery is named after my grandmother because she bought me a paint by number set. I have now generated enough interest and I have enough of a market where I feel that I can now begin to build on leaving a legacy. The store that I, the, the building that I purchased at is right across the street from the local dime store where my grandmother bought me a paint My number set. the gentleman who owns all that property found out about a gal, he's now going to open a, a very nice restaurant across from there. So part of my goal is to get people to come to my little rural impoverished town where I grew up and to see What emerged out of a humble beginning? And I plan on trying to build upon this to leave a body of work in that area and purchase a larger building and turn it into somewhat of a museum. I have a collector who's very interested in this already. So I am not the kind of person who waits around for Superman to come because Superman ain't coming. I create my opportunities. Uh, I take advantage of the best that I know with a little bit of knowledge that I do have about business. And now it's time to build a legacy and to be able to leave a body of my work. In the area where I grew up, where kids are still struggling for role models, they still grow up very poor, I want to be a platform to say, yes, you can dream. And you can dream big. And you can achieve it. It will take hard work because, you know, everybody's not going to help you. Everybody's not going to believe in you. But you have to believe in yourself first and then people come along. And that's what's happened throughout my career as a painter. That people look at me very suspiciously when I was in Kansas and say, oh, this poor kid, he's living over in his little dive of apartment, he ain't got no money, and here I am. Isn't that something?
0: Well, I think there's a lot that uh, we can all take from that. I create my opportunities. I venture to say that um, one of the reasons for your success is precisely that attitude and commitment through your lifetime. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Dean Mitchell, visit deanmitchellstudio.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkelingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkelingsfund.org impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Dean. It's been really great having you. It's
1: been a pleasure.